Well, as you can see from the screen, we're looking at Genesis chapter 19, which you'll find on page 19 of the Church Bibles. And before we read that together, let's give thanks to the Lord for his word, and let's pray that he will speak to us clearly through it this evening, and as Andrew explains it to us. Amen. So Genesis 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and enter his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. <coughs> then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so they, that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favour in your eyes. And you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to. And it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well. I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. But flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. 
Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke rising from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you much, Phil. Uh, Do keep that uh, passage open. Uh, So we're back in Genesis. uh, In the series that explores a life of Abraham and his faith uh, and the wonderful privilege of being a friend of God, uh, a God who blesses, who makes incredible uh, promises, promises that touched Abraham's life but also touch ours as well thousands of years uh, after the events that we're reading about. Uh, Tonight we're thinking more actually about a man called Lot, Uh, Abraham's nephew, who, if you remember back, uh, came out of Ur with Abraham in Genesis 12. Uh, To be honest, this is a tough uh, passage uh, to preach on, Um, a a tough passage where we hear God's promises, uh, not so much his promises to save, perhaps in the foreground, but his promises to judge sin and evil. And there are parts of this story that are deeply uh, shocking, uh, that it would be very tempting to gloss over, uh, because they are just unspeakably horrible. But they are words that God has included in his word for our good. So we're going to pray in just a moment. Uh, But as we come to this passage, just a question um, for us to think about. Let's get running. There we go. Uh, Here are some images. I guess you can probably work out what connects them. And the kind of question I want to ask is, when we are warned about something, what makes us take that warning seriously? What leads us to maybe ignore a warning? A moment to think about that. And then I'll pray. Let's pray. Apostle Paul writes about other events in the Old Testament that feature judgment. And he says, these things happen to them as examples and are written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Lord Jesus, we don't enjoy hearing warnings, but these things in our passage really happened and are written down as warnings for us. So please help us to hear these warnings as you lovingly uh, give them to us tonight. Help us not only to to hear them, but to act on what you teach us. May these words be words of mercy and grace to us. uh, For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, last week you had this remarkable um, experience of eavesdropping on a conversation between God and Abraham. God reveals to Abraham he's come down in response to a great outcry rising up from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In a world of rebellion, these uh, cities uh, exhibit grievous sin. 
that has reached up to God. And he's come down to see, as he puts it, to see if things are as bad as they uh, appear to be and whether they are deserving of his justice and judgment. It's worth saying, actually, that God is already aware, I think, of the situation in Sodom. But I think God is underlining to Abraham that his justice will always operate in accordance with the facts. It will reflect the reality of the situation on the ground. And it seems, doesn't it, that Abraham is aware of that situation and he knows what will happen to Sodom and to Gomorrah. God's justice is going to fall on those places. And if you remember last week, we saw uh, Abraham pleading for those cities. Lord, if there are 50 righteous in those cities in Sodom, wouldn't you spare it for their sake? Wouldn't it be just wrong to sweep away all those people, the righteous with the unrighteous, treating them as the same? Won't the judge of the earth do what is right? And then you remember, Abraham pleads for God to withhold justice if, a judgment if there's just 40 found, or just 30, or, or 20, and finally 10. And I think as we saw last time, I don't think Abraham is kind of arguing God down. Indeed, God has never promised that he would bring judgment down indiscriminately on the cities. Indeed, that conversation just underscores, I think, God's commitment to acting justly, uh, showing to Abraham his commitment to doing what is right. Yes, the judge of the earth will do what is right. His judgment won't be indiscriminate. It will fall where it isn't. It will not fall where it's not deserved. Well, in chapter 19, we find ourselves, though, we in Sodom. Uh, two of these three individuals who've earlier met Abraham reach the city gates, uh, where they encounter Abraham's nephew Lot. Um, now, if you remember, Abraham and Lot had set out from Ur together, but eventually Lot and Abraham had parted company when a dispute arose between uh, their respective herdsmen over land. And if you recall, Lot was given the choice by Abraham where he would want to settle. And he chooses a place near uh, towards the Jordan, a place uh, called Zoar, which was green and it was fertile. And as the narrator put it, it was like the Garden of the Lord. It was like Eden uh, and like the land of Egypt. Significantly, I think, it was near the edge of Canaan, maybe just outside it. But that didn't really bother Lot, as it offered him all he wanted in terms of beauty and fertility and wealth. Uh, sure, it did mean living frighteningly close to the infamous city of Sodom. But that is where Lot chose to pitch his tents and to settle. Well, Lot appears again in chapter 14 of Genesis, where uh, Sodom is raided and its inhabitants are carried off as bounty. And Lot, Lot is captured too, since at that time he is now living in Sodom. It's a very small detail, but it's not insignificant. He's once on the edge of Sodom, just outside it, now he's living in Sodom itself. Now I'm sure that when Lot and Abraham parted company, Lot would have been really aware of the uh, dreadful reputation of Sodom. It was infamous. And I'm sure he would never have contemplated actually living within its city walls. But over time, perhaps for, the, perhaps for the convenience, perhaps for the influence, who knows, he crosses a line that maybe he never dreamt of crossing. And did you notice verse 1? When the two angels arrive at the city, they find Lot at the gateway of the city. It is the position where those in authority would have sat, at the place reserved for the sort of movers and the shakers of the town. And he seems, at one level, very much at home, doesn't he? Even referring to his fellow townspeople as friends in verse 7. 
Well, maybe Lot was just a bit naive. Maybe he wasn't fully aware of the wickedness going on around him. I don't think so. (laughs) As the guests arrive and offer to spend the nights out in the town, Lot's insistence they don't do that is because he knows just what is going to happen if they do, how dangerous, how evil the streets of Sodom are. And then notice, under the cover of darkness, these men of the city come, they surround Lot's house, uh, and demand that Lot brings out those guests that they might have sex with them. I think what's envisaged here is some kind of, I guess, a gang, gang rape. That is awful, isn't it? Too awful almost to contemplate. And did you notice the narrator indicates that uh, these weren't just the dregs of Sodom, just a few rotten apples. No, we're told in verse 4, all the men from every part of the city, both young and old, were involved. So what does Lot do before this mob? Well, he knew that hospitality was highly valued in the ancient Near East, that guests were to be treated like family. But look what Lot offers as a solution. He offers his own daughters to this frenzied crowd. Look, I've got two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. I've got two daughters. And even as I read these words, I feel physically sick. Not surprisingly, lots has been written about this particular scene. Some have used this as a proof of the Bible's condemnation of all homosexual acts. But I think that's inferring more than these verses actually warrants here. That doesn't mean the Bible doesn't uh, disapprove of homosexual acts. But I don't think this is a passage I would turn to to make that case. Uh, later in the Bible, this story will be used to warn against a range of sins, including arrogance, exploitation, and sexual immorality, and lack of care. And I think we see all these, don't we, highlighted in this dreadful scene. Maybe it's just me, but aren't you wondering how Lot ended up in such a place? Uh, So embedded in the life of this depraved city. How he decided to make this place his home. Even becoming one of its movers and shakers. I remember hearing a story I've never forgotten. uh, A story that I remembered when I thought about this story this week. Once there was a wealthy, somewhat eccentric man called Samuel, who lived near the top of a mountain. There was just one road up to the top of his house, a winding narrow road with hairpin bends and steep cliff edges. And this man had been driven up and down this road to his house in his Bentley by his very faithful chauffeur. But the chauffeur had died, and Samuel found himself looking for a replacement. He advertised and began to interview the applicants. Uh, The first applicant was a middle-aged man. Uh, Samuel looked at his CV and said, I can see you're well qualified. I've just got one question. The road is narrow. It's quite dangerous. So I want to know how close to the edge you can drive without dropping me off the edge of the cliff. Man thought for a moment, I I think I could drive within a foot from the edge without putting your life in danger. Uh, The second interviewee was younger. He too was well qualified and was asked the same question. How close to the edge could you drive without risking my safety? And he thought, well, the last guy said a foot and didn't get the job. So he said, I think I can get within about six inches 
and keep you safe. The third applicant was rather older, again well qualified, again asked the same question, and instantly the man responded, I don't know how close, I don't care, I don't intend to find out, it is my practice to drive as far from the edge as possible. And Samuel offered him the job. Well, here's Lot offering his daughters up to a mob. And I think if he asked Lot a few years earlier, uh, would he be making such a choice? He would have thrown his hands up in horror. But what happens here is something that reflects uh, a life where Lot has been little by little living closer to the edge. He's confident that he can get very close without falling off the side, without succumbing. Uh, But he's flirting with sin, his willingness to tolerate it, to first live within the orbit of this wicked city and then to to live in it. And even to have some sort of position of authority. It's It's a warning, isn't it? It's a warning. Striking, there's something in Lot that is appalled, isn't it, by sin and yet something in him that's comfortable with it, even at home with it. The New Testament describes people like Lot as double-minded, trying to have, as it were, your foot in two camps, one foot in the kingdom of God, one foot in the world. And I was reading this story this week, and this story makes me feel very uneasy. Why? I think because there's something in Lot in me too, something in me that rightly is horrified by sin and disgusted by it so often, and yet I'm still drawn to it. It still has an allure for me. And there are times I think I can act uh, and control it. Sometimes I think I can get close to it without compromising, without falling over the edge. And it's like we get closer and closer to that edge. And suddenly we find ourselves in situations where we discover we are in our necks, up to our necks in it, helpless and powerless. Perhaps you've ever wondered yourself, how close can I get without crossing the line? I remember as a, as a, as a student at school often discussing with the Christi- what Christians could do, how far they could go in a relationship with someone of the opposite sex without crossing the line into sin. But this story tells us that's the wrong kind of question, isn't it? It ignores the power of sin to, to draw us. It overestimates our power to resist sin as we put ourselves in its orbit. It's like a magnet, isn't it? The closer you get to a magnet, the more it draws. Well, here is Lot, dismayed by the sin around him, but unable to flee from it. Uh, Sickened by it, yet flirting with it. It's a bit like the time I found myself on on the wrong train, going in the wrong direction. And it's no good, is it, running down the corridor in the right direction? You need to get off the train. See, we can't have Christ and the world. Paul says in Corinthians, what does wickedness and righteousness have in common? Uh, What fellowship is there between light and darkness? If we think we can keep our options open, to have a foot in both camps, we discover we can't. It doesn't work. Well, notice in verse 10, God has to intervene, doesn't he, supernaturally through the two angels in this dreadful situation to to pull Lot back into the house just in the nick of time and then sending a a blindness on that mob so they're unable to to storm the house. 
And then Lot's told, isn't he, that Sodom and the surrounding area is to be destroyed. And he's urged to round up his family, anyone uh, uh, in his household, and to urge them to flee. So Lot leaves the house, doesn't he? He finds uh, a couple of boys who are due to marry his daughters, and he warns them of the, the threat that's about to fall on this city. But in spite of the warnings, they think Lot is joking. Can't imagine the city's going to be heading for such an end. Everything's just so normal, you know, carrying on as it always did. This talk of it all ending and warning didn't seem possible, ridiculous. Uh, sometimes I find myself walking through Sainsbury's. Life is just carrying on, isn't it? Just as usual. People, in Jesus' words, eating and drinking and getting on with life. It just seems hard to imagine, doesn't it, that, that the world is under sentence, that a day of judgment is coming and will bring that world to an end. And I've tried to warn people sometimes, perhaps not often enough, I, they think often that I'm joking. I'm some sort of crank. Well, as daylight arrives, so the moment of judgment draws near, doesn't it? And with no time to lose, the two angels plead for Lot to take those who will go with him and flee. And even now, what does Lot do? He hesitates. Can you imagine that? Maybe he thinks about what he will leave behind. All that he will lose. But the angels literally strong harm him out of danger. As Lot seems unwilling to acknowledge the terrible danger he's in. That was very revealing. He's made his home in Sodom. He's become increasingly invested in it and his life in it. His life revolves around it. And now in the city he perhaps never imagined living in. He finds a city so hard to leave. Maybe he had never intended to stay very long. He just rationalised it, uh, just short-term, temporary. But now when he needs to leave, he can't. Uh, just recently, uh, Nathaniel and I were watching the, the final instalment of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And if you know the story, that hobbit Frodo has been given this task of bearing and ultimately destroying this ring that he's been given, this ring of power that corrupts and controls and after three long movies of Frodo carrying this ring to the place of destruction, and it comes to the moment of throwing that ring into the fire, he can't. He's carried it for so long, it's been such a burden to him, and now in the moment of decision, he just can't part with it. So precious. Well, here it seems that Sodden has gotten into Lot, hasn't it? And it's no hope. But for all those compromises, God very graciously acts, doesn't he? And he brings Lot and his family out. And we'll see that a bit more in just a moment. And it's much striking. As, as he's urged to flee for the hills, verse 18, we find Lot pleading to, to be allowed to stay back in Zor, the place he'd first lived after, after separating from Abraham, the place just outside the orbit of Sodom. I'm thinking, what are you thinking, mate? You know, flee means flee. Don't negotiate. Just run for the hills as instructed. Well, if Sodom is in Lot, tragically, it's even more in Lot's wife, isn't it? So having been told not to look back as they flee, see, she does just that, doesn't she? I don't think it was a kind of quick glance, a, a sudden curious urge to, to see the, the events unfolding behind them. It's a looking back, isn't it, with longing. A glance that says, I never wanted to leave. 
She may, be, may appear to be getting out of Sodom, but actually her heart's still there. With Lot, you could say his heart was a bit divided, but I think her loyalties are clear, and tragically, she experiences the same judgment, doesn't she, that falls on Sodom. And we're told she becomes a pillar of salt, a tragic, very tangible warning of the dangers of living for this world and this world alone. And Jesus, speaking about this reality of coming judgment in Luke 17, homes in, doesn't he, on this tragic moment. Remember Lot's wife, he urges his hearers. And he goes on and says, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. In other words, if we try and cling on to this world and what it offers, we will lose everything. You can't keep holding on to that old life and enjoying Jesus and the new life he offers. Well, judgment does fall, doesn't it, on this wicked city. God keeps his promise to judge as faithfully as he keeps his promise to bless and save. He does what he says, always. Verse 24, the Lord rained down burning sulfur from the heavens, overthrowing those cities. It's very clear, isn't it? It's God's work here. So we sometimes talk about sin having its own punishment built into it, and that's certainly true. But here the Bible makes it very clear that judgment is not the outworking of some abstract, impersonal algorithm. It is a right and personal response of God towards sin and wickedness. And as we saw earlier, according to Jesus, this very event is one of a number of pictures that points us forward to the, that moment when God will call time on human history and judge the world. And that reality is echoed by people like Peter, who describes this act of judgment as a graphic warning of what will happen to the ungodly, a local and momentary illustration of what will one day be global and eternal. And just this week, as I was reflecting on this passage, it seemed so unimaginable, almost unthinkable, as I was surrounded by people just getting on with life, buying, selling, eating, drinking. But the most loving person who ever walked the planet reminds us that this is real. A trailer for what is coming for those who are living for this world who are living just for the here and now, for a world that's going to be judged rather than for him and what is lasting and eternal. This is a warning, isn't it? That's why I think it's here. And yet, I think it's a story of surprising hope as well, isn't it? See, in spite of his double-mindedness, the reality of his compromise with the world, God did rescue this man Lot. He had to be dragged out, didn't he? Almost kicking and screaming, but God rescued him. So here's a question, really. Why? Why? Why was Lot rescued? How did he escape the judgment that fell on the city? Our passage tells us, doesn't it? One answer, I think, focuses on the why, and the second, I think, on the how. And both have very little to do with Lot. So why? Why is this compromised and sinful man rescued along with his family? Verse 16. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and his hand, the hand of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. Lot didn't deserve it, did he? Uh, 
His family didn't deserve it. It was not what they were owed. No, God had mercy on them. Even in their own half-heartedness and reluctance to be rescued, God shows astonishing kindness and patience and love in sparing their lives. He's determined, isn't he, to show mercy. And if we're Christians tonight, that sense of wonder at the mercy of God continues, doesn't it, to blow our minds? Long after God first intervened to bring us out of, his, out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of the son he loves. Perhaps even this week we found ourselves flirting with sin, the world, being tempted to make ourselves comfortable at home with it, making ungodly choices. And again, maybe we've been floored by the mercy of God who pulls us away from the danger uh, by his grace to safety. And it is a, a, a mercy that doesn't give us license to play with sin. Says the Apostle Paul, it is a mercy that makes us committed to offering our bodies as living sacrifices for God's purposes and ways. In view of God's mercy, he says, we offer our bodies, we offer ourselves afresh to doing what God wants, what is pleasing to him. Well, that's, I think, the why uh, Lot was rescued. It was because simply of the mercy of God. But I think our passage also points at the how. Look down at verse 29 at the end of our passage. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Do you notice uh, the mercy shown to Lot was something to do with God remembering Abraham? Strike, is it? Not God remembered Lot. But God remembered Abraham. Somehow this mercy that God shows is related, connected to, to Abraham and the promises that God had made to him. See, God made promises, didn't he, to bless Abraham, but also to bless others, uh, all kinds of people from all kinds of nations and backgrounds, to bless a dying and sinful world uh, through the promises he made to Abraham. Now, Abraham is not the great curse lifter, is he? But one of his descendants would be. And it was through Abraham that this offspring called Jesus came. And God is able to bless us. How? As Jesus takes the punishment, the judgment we deserve and pays for it fully and completely. He's the, the curse bearer. It's through him, says Paul in Thessalonians, we are saved from the coming wrath. So you see, even as God promises judgment, he continues to hold out hands to a rebellious world and calls it to turn back to him. Because he's a God of mercy, a God who loves to show mercy through Jesus. So as I finish, I just think two things strike me in terms of how this story maybe relates to us. For some here, perhaps, this story and what it points to highlights your urgent need to seek God's mercy, to take hold of his rescue. This passage makes it very clear. You can't hold on to Jesus at the same time you hold on to your old life. Jesus is right. If we keep trying to do that, we will lose our life. In fact, we'll lose everything. 
Again, Paul urges you to get out, get to get rid of that old life. Why? Because judgment's real. It is coming. That's why we need to act. And if it seems very remote, far away, we think that life will just carry on as usual, as normal. And this story is a warning, isn't it? A warning we cannot afford to ignore. Let me urge you to cry out for mercy. And to cry to a God who is ready, more than ready, to, to give mercy than we are to ask for it. I guess for us who are Christians, there is a warning here, I think, for us too, isn't there? This story tells us that sin and all wickedness will be judged and destroyed. And so for us, just as, as Lot was saved from his old life, this is, a, I think, a warning to, to keep fleeing, not to go back to that old life, to see uh, how close we can get to living it again, to getting cosy with our sin and to put ourselves unnecessarily in its orbits. No, in view of God's mercy, we offer ourselves afresh uh, as living sacrifices, our bodies, our lives. So even tomorrow morning, if we wake up in the same bed as we woke up this morning, we meet the same people, we do the same jobs, we will want maybe to live distinctly and differently, to live a new life with new hopes and desires, with new ambitions and dreams that we now have through Jesus. Isn't that what most of us want to do this week? Well, in view of God's mercy, in view of that old life being crucified with Christ, judged, having been embraced by God's grace and empowered by his spirit, let's live as rescued and forgiven people. Not compromise, not trying to live with one foot in two camps, which is dangerous and miserable. Uh, but let's live that new life that we've been called to do so and live wholeheartedly and thankfully. Let me pray. <laughs> Father, this story is written uh, for us, we believe, and it's, it is a story of warning. Father, we know in our own lives how perhaps part of us is re recoiled by sin and yet we find ourselves drawn to it. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you for that mercy that you show to us through Jesus. Thank you that that judgment we deserved fell on him so that we might know forgiveness and a new life freed from that old life. Lord, please may we know that rescue, that mercy afresh today, or maybe for the first time. And Lord, please, in this week ahead, help us not to flirt with sin, but to live by your spirit directed by your word in those good paths. Thank you, Lord, for your ongoing commitment and patience with us. Please continue to use this story, even this week, to encourage us, to warn us, to reach out again for your mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.